Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on the Tuesday evening, where we are set to explore another chapter from the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 41 now. In chapter 41, we have one of the longer chapters in the whole corpus of Genesis, in the whole book of Genesis, right? So I cannot promise you that we're going to get through this chapter this evening. And in point of fact, hopefully it will only take two evenings. But if it takes three, that's okay, because what's important for us isn't so much how many days or how many podcasts it takes to get through the book of Genesis, but that we go through it carefully, uh, verse by verse, as we have been doing this now for... Oh, I think this is podcast episode number 74, right? 74. I believe I started this podcast, oh, eight, nine months ago. So we have been at this for quite some time. And as always, before I jump in, I do just want to continue to welcome all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here on Seeds of Truth. You know, I was thinking about you, the listener, uh, this morning, and one of the things that struck me is you know, from time to time, I hear from you, you ask me questions, and I respond to you. Uh, I want to explicitly ask you to respond to, what are you getting out of this study on the book of Genesis? What are you getting out of this study on the book of Genesis? And I know it's a pretty generic, general question, but I leave it that way so as to to give you the kind of space you need to respond to that question. And what I would like to do, with your permission, is go to air with some of your responses, some of the things that you are receiving from this study on the book of Genesis. If you want to email me that, that would be great, at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to my website at joholcraft.org. Again, that's two L's, J-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T dot org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your response on its way. That would be great. I would love to hear from you on maybe just not what you're getting out from this study on the book of Genesis, but maybe some of the things you've been thinking about specific to this great epic as it concerns Joseph. Because from Genesis chapter 37 onward, we're all about Joseph. And as we are, specifically to chapter 41, we really do arrive at a pivotal chapter in the Joseph story, in the Joseph epic, when he rises from the depths of the pit or uh, the depths of the dungeon to the heights of the royal power of Egypt. And in Genesis chapter 41, you really have a chapter of transition because he's moving from the pit, the dungeon, into the heights of, of authority, if you will, an authority that has been given to him by and from God, of course. You see, my friends, God himself as we will quickly discover in this chapter, in our study of this chapter, has arranged for this elevation of status by endowing Joseph with the wisdom to interpret dreams and the foresight, of course, to prepare Egypt for the coming famine that I think all of us are so familiar with. So this is a very pivotal chapter where he goes from the pit, from the dungeon, to the heights 
of uh, standing next to the Pharaoh, not because he seeks power, prestige, and pleasure, but because God has allowed it, okay? God has allowed it and ultimately has given him the grace to be present, still yet, while next to the Pharaoh, the grace to be uh, present to God. All right, with that, let us jump into chapter 41. This very long chapter that deals with Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, and of course, as I was just talking about, his rise to power in Egypt. All right, verse 1. After two whole years. Okay, now, before we get started on this, something should strike you about that. After two whole years. I mean, what's up with that? Let us go back to the beginning of chapter 40. We know that he was confined to prison because of what Potiphar's wife did to him. In chapter 40, verse 1, we read, after the imprisonment, sometime after this. So he was already in prison for a while, for quote-unquote some time. Now, fast forward 24 verses, a whole chapter later, and we read in verse 1, after two whole years. Okay, now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But uh, from time to time, I tend to grumble or complain if something has gone wrong. And if I am made to have to be patient with something for more than an hour, a day, two days, a week. Here, Joseph has been confined, has been isolated for at least two, maybe two and a half, three years. Okay, we know at least two years. He's been confined to prison. And yet, do we hear Joseph grumble? Do we hear Joseph complain? Do we hear of an impatient Joseph like we may hear of an impatient Job or Elijah or Jonah? No, we don't. That's what makes Joseph so unique. This is why, my friends, Joseph stands by himself in the whole of the Old Testament. When we think about great men, we often talk about Job, Elijah, and Jonah alongside, of course, of Abraham and David and Moses and all of them, Noah. Yet it's Joseph, Joseph, that stands alone. And I, my friends, for one, absolutely love that. You know, he's my namesake. So as I sit here talking about (laughs) my propensity from time to time to grumble or complain, by the grace of God go I, I can stand to heed the model example that is the great figure, Joseph, from the Old Testament. Well, something else here. We can stand to really learn something as it relates to how we think about dealing with hardship, too, right? This past weekend, my pastor at a local parish gave a beautiful homily on the importance of our relationship with Jesus and calling upon Jesus in times of hardship. And I would really echo that homily in this podcast And as I do, go to where my pastor went. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. You know that passage where Jesus Christ says to the tempest wind, peace, be still. Why don't we flip there, actually? Why don't we flip to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41 to, to really appreciate and draw out what we are talking about here because this is so important. If we want to get underneath the significance of what I would argue is this, is this opening verse, after two whole years, in the light of 
his imprisonment, right? All right, verse 35 and following from Mark chapter 4. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great storm of wind arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I mean, this is a fisherman's boat from roughly 31 AD, probably big enough just for those immediate apostles to be in the boat with him. And somehow, some way, as the water was filling this boat, as, as the, the water with the winds were crashing up against the boat, he was able to, in the stern, be asleep on the cushion. Now, I think that rendering can also be translated as resting. Now, what strikes me is what the apostles said to Jesus. Teacher, do you not care if we perish? Don't you understand that this boat is about to sink? Don't you understand that we are in these great tempest winds, these winds of high miles per hour? Don't you care? Don't you see the trial and circumstance we might find ourselves in just about now? What do we read then? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Now, my friends, if we were to get underneath the Greek of this text, what we have to understand is that Jesus wasn't on the margins. He wasn't on the sidelines looking on, saying to himself, ha, 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 you know, look at my apostles perish. No. What have I said about the importance of a question? God desires that we ask questions because in the questions will come what? But that critical thinking. He can then respond as he ought. There's a reason why he often responds to a question with a question in the gospel, because he wants to make sure that we are thinking critically about what we are saying. Teacher, do you not care if we perish? So now, the apostles, they look upon Jesus with a single mind and a single heart. They address Jesus. And it is when they address Jesus in this boat that appears to, to be sinking does he respond, peace, be still. And what do we read? And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You see, my friends, <laughs> peace is not the absence of the storm, but the calm in the storm. That's what defines the, the great spiritual fruit of peace, you see. So many of us think we lack peace because there's chaos all around us. But no, what Jesus wants us to, to understand is that peace is not the absence of warfare, but spiritual welfare. And out from that spiritual welfare, will we come to understand what peace is all about, the calm in the storm. You see, my friends, when we are in a covenant harmony relationship with God, and that's what the Hebrew shalom means, covenant harmony, when we are in a harmonious relationship with God, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of what might appear to be perishing, can we say, peace, be still. 
because it is in the authority of Jesus Christ and in the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have the power to say such things. And then what does he say? He said to them, <laughs> I love this, <laughs> why are you afraid? Um, Jesus, tempest winds, boat sinking, has something to do with it. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Yeah, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why are we talking about this narrative, this gospel episode, in relationship to Genesis chapter 41 and those, what, four words after two whole years? Because Joseph had every right to say, Hey, God, do you not care if I perish? Do you not care what I am going through right now? I have been isolated for at least two years, if not more, right? Two and a half years, maybe. But as I have already said, unlike any other figure in the Old Testament, he does not succumb to a lack of faith in God, but rather imbued with this deep sense of faith in God, he carries on. And why do I highlight faith? Because Jesus Christ himself highlights faith. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? What is Jesus doing there? He is tying the relationship between fear and faith. Paul does the same thing in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, right? You have not received the spirit of slavery in which you fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which we cry, Abba, Father, that faith-imbued gift that has been given to us in baptism to cry, Abba, Father, so that we might overcome our fears. Joseph overcame his fears. And he did so in such a model-like way. So, <laughs> after two whole years, let us not forget the significance of that opening verse, half verse to chapter 41. All right, lest we never get out of this book, <laughs> let us continue. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, sleek and fat, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, gaunt and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the gaunt and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream." So in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret it to Pharaoh. Hmm, isn't this interesting? <laughs> he calls the magicians. He calls the wise men by human standard, right? Because they could not interpret what properly belongs to God. His dreams were dreams given to him by God. 
God entered his sleep and allowed these dreams to take place. God said, well, it was time. It was time to take Joseph out from his pit, out from his dungeon. It was time for me to raise him up. Verse 9, Then the chief butler said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today. (laughs) Two years later, Oh, by the way, Pharaoh, I remember my faults today. Only now, after the passing of two years, does this butler remember the kind of service Joseph rendered to him in prison and the request he made to inform the Pharaoh of it. I spent a lot of time yesterday evening talking about that very thing. The butlers, the chief butlers in gratitude because he did not remember what Joseph asked of him. And yet now he does. Then the chief butler said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. Verse 13, And as he interpreted to us, so it came to pass. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So he remembered the detail of what took place over two years ago. Now clearly, the Pharaoh has been moved. Clearly, the Pharaoh too remembers what happened over two years ago. Why? Because what does the Pharaoh do? He sends his guards to call Joseph. And so we read in verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. Finally. (laughs) That's not scripture, that's me. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. And I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You see, his success never was about the I. It was never about what he accomplished. It was always about what God was doing in and through him. You know, my friends, even for the holiest of man, It is so easy to take credit for something we have done. We can only do what we do because of God's very goodness. And Joseph gets this like no other in the Old Testament. Not once, not once, again, and I can never reinforce this enough, does he fall. He never takes credit for for what he has done. What does he say? It is not in me. This is not something that I can do, but only God through me. It is a gift from God (laughs) that gives me the power to do this. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, and seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. And seven other cows came up after them, poor and very gaunt and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. 
And the thin and gaunt cows ate up the first seven fat cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as gaunt as at the beginning. Then I awoke. And isn't it interesting, my friends, that the Pharaoh remembers the very detail of his dream? We have had thousands of dreams, each and every one of us. And I am convinced that the ones we remember in their detail, we do because God desires we do. God puts it into mind, yes, but also the heart. He is recalling this dream with great detail to the number. I mean, think about a recent dream you've had and ask yourself, maybe you met a number of people. Could you remember the number of people you saw in this dream? Could you remember the colors that the people were wearing? The Pharaoh here seems to remember all those fine details, which of course are relevant to the interpretation. All right, we continue. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good and seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. I love that, by the way, that verse. The dream of Pharaoh is one. What is Joseph explicitly saying? All that you dream, it's all interconnected. We look at Joseph as the great interpreter of dreams. We should also look at Joseph as the one who embodies wisdom. Because wisdom is about seeing or having a taste for how all things are interconnected. It is a gift, yes, but one nonetheless that is exercised and observed and spoken to. This is what we read in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. So first and foremost, Pharaoh, what I want you to understand is that there isn't anything about this dream that is autonomous from anything else that you've dreamed about. Okay, so first and foremost, understand that. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. The seven lean and gaunt cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of that famine which will follow, for it will be very grievous. It will be very grievous. Incidentally, my friends, as we're going through this dream, there's clearly an emphasis on the number seven. And hopefully by now you know why. We know in Hebrew antiquity that the number seven is the number that is symbolic for perfection, right? But there's a reason why. It's just not to say, well, seven is the number that represents perfection. The reason why is because you entered into a relationship with God by how? The swearing of O's. We see the covenant made between Abraham 
and Abimelech, right? Where they exchange seven ewe lambs and they swore an oath. The Hebrew there to swear an oath is Shiva. It literally translates as to swear an oath or to seven oneself. You see, the number seven is caught up in this covenant ritual. So the number seven, as it's caught up in this covenant oath-swearing language, is forever, infinitely, eternally tied to all that belongs to covenant relationship with God. Hundreds of times do you see that number seven, and it's not a coincidence, but an intended God incident, a reminder of the covenant love that he wishes to pour out upon his people. That even the least expected moment, the least expected encounter, is still yet something God is going to use to ultimately reveal and point to the coming of his own son. Seven this, seven that, right? All right, verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take the fifth part of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine which are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Maybe what's most fascinating about these series of verses is what we then read in the following verse. This proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but what strikes me about that is he didn't need to see this take place. He didn't need to see these first seven years of great produce. He just believed him. He just believed him. And out from Joseph's interpretation and, and witness to the Spirit of God working through him, did Pharaoh respond to it? Did the Pharaoh respond to it? You know, for some of us, Maybe God has given us a revelation, a prophetic revelation, an interpretation of how God is working in our life. And we say to our mentor, director, to God himself, I'm not so sure about that. I have to, I have to wait a while and kind of see how this all shakes out. Now, we need to be a discerning people. But at the same time, God asks us, do you have faith? I believe that it was the Spirit of God who had consumed Joseph to the point that when he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream, the Pharaoh could only be but convinced of what Joseph was saying. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.